Well, good morning again. I want to invite you to grab a Bible. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16 verses 22 and 23 will, or 22 through 36, excuse me, will be where we spend the majority of our time in God's word this morning. I don't know about you. I could sing that song like a hundred times. Oh my gosh. It's so good, right? And there's just a, yeah, there's a sweet spirit in the room. I'm trusting that the Lord's going to move. I'm really grateful for you, church. Grateful for our time in the word today. Um, like I said, this is this is kind of a part two of last week. Pastor Sean delivered part one of Exodus 16. We'll be looking at the second half of Exodus 16 today. Uh, before we dive in, though, I want to share something that I've noticed lately. Think about this. When you pass someone outside in the lobby or in the kids space or maybe out in the community at the grocery store, what is like the American way to greet someone? We say some variation of, hey, how are you? Or, hey, how you doing? And I've noticed there are two different ways to ask this question. One, it's more of like a colloquial kind of greeting where you ask someone, how are you? And you literally don't stop walking. And in that moment, you don't really care about how that person is, but you know it's the nice thing to say and you want them to know that you care about them. So you say, hey, how are you? We get in trouble though when that happens and they say, well, actually not so good. And then you just kind of screech to a halt. And you realize you probably got more than you bargained for in that moment. The second kind, though, is more intentional. It's the, hey, how are you over a cup of coffee? Or, and maybe in here after corporate worship, when you ask the question, how are you? Or how you doing? And you actually listen to their response. Here's what I've noticed. Over the last few months, when I've asked that question, the second time, not the drive-by time, when I've asked that question, how are you? And actually listened for the response. I've gotten some variation of the same answer. Good, but busy. Good, but man, it's been a crazy week. I think this is something that we could probably all relate to. Imagine if I did a social experiment and I asked you to turn to your neighbor, say, hey, how was your week? I'm betting that most of us would say some variation of good but busy. Busy has become super normal in American 21st century culture. We are all busy. High schoolers are busy. Guys have crazy amounts of homework. Amen, Mason. All busy. College students are busy. Multiple jobs, taking classes, everything. Y'all are busy. Young parents are busy. Amen? Amen, young parents are busy. Having little kids is really, really hard. Baristas at Starbucks are busy. CEOs are busy. Empty nesters are busy. Those tea times don't reserve themselves. We're all busy. But here's the thing. Not only are we busy, we are distracted. Busy and we're distracted. There's some research this week. The average iPhone user, this is about to get really convicting, touches his phone 2,617 times a day. A Pew Research study conducted within the last five years found that over half of Americans said they're usually trying to do more than two or three things at once, which means they're not focusing well on anything at all. Over 60% of people surveyed said that they're frequently too busy or distracted to meaningfully enjoy life. Listen, if you don't think this is a problem for you, if you're thinking, Colin, that's not relatable for me, imagine if your phone right now vibrated in your pocket. How focused would you be on what I'm saying? for the next 10 seconds. We're busy, 
and were distracted. And they're like, there are more numbers or stats I could rattle off, but those are just the studies. We know experientially that we are a busy and frantic people that depending on the phase of life we're in, we have play dates. Our schedules are jam-packed with soccer practice and balancing multiple jobs, endless amounts of homework or work emails, family pressures or expectations, small group needs to meet, all while our phones send us notification after notification. We feel the constant tug of social media and work emails, and we all try to keep up with the latest piece of news just so that we can stay relevant. Like, listen, don't get me wrong. Busyness in and of itself is not a bad thing. I'm not talking right now about a healthy, kingdom-advancing, God-honoring productivity. I'm talking about a frantic and distracted, soul-crushing pace that leaves you exhausted at the end of every day and absolutely wired because you did so much but got nothing done. Statistically and experientially, we are a busy and distracted people. All the while, we have the backdrop of the words of Jesus. In Matthew 11, saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do we do that, though? Do we come to Jesus for rest? I know that I don't as often as I should. And so if you're like me, you're feeling the tension here. Pastor named Dallas Willard called distraction and busyness one of the greatest spiritual enemies in our lives. And I think he's onto something. The Bible is really clear. In John chapter 10, we have an enemy. The enemy, the thief, comes to do three things. What? Steal, kill, and destroy. So the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. How does he do this? Satan doesn't look at a gathering like this coastal church and think, I need to turn them all into adulterous bank robbers overnight. That's not the enemy's strategy. He's more subtle than that. Satan wants us distracted, church. Once our eyes off of Jesus and onto Instagram for hours at a time, he wants our eyes off of Jesus and onto our work emails every day. He wants that to be the first thing we look at and the last thing we look at. He wants us distracted. I think one of the most subtle and deceptive dangers in our walk with Jesus is not that we will renounce him and become atheists. One of the subtle and distracted dangers of our walk with Jesus is that we will become so distracted and hurry that we will settle for a mediocre version of the Christian life. That we will be, Mark 4 talks about seed sown among the thorns, the ones who hear and accept the word, which most of us in this gathering would intellectually accept. We understand that the word is God's word, but for who the cares of this world choke out any meaningful growth. So here's our plan for a time in the word this morning. We're going to look at the first time that God's people observed the Sabbath. We're going to see, Lord willing, how practicing the Sabbath and cultivating that discipline in our own lives is one of the best God-given ways for us to fight against this pull, this frantic pull of busyness and distraction. We'll see, Lord willing, two things. One, how we can find rest in Christ through one of the natural means of grace that God has given us, the tangible discipline of the Sabbath. And we'll see how Jesus ultimately does offer us everlasting rest. So let's look at Exodus 16. A quick Recap from last week, if you missed Pastor Sean's message, go back and listen to it because he spent a lot of time unpacking the context of what's going on in our story today. We're picking it up at the halfway point. Verse 22, in the middle of the narrative, God had just provided manna for his people. Exodus 16, starting in verse 22, this is the word of God. 
On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two homers each. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over laid aside to be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Remember, last week, back in verse 20, if the people gathered more than a day's portion of manna, it would rot, be totally inedible. Stink, stink, stunk. I remember that from last week. Moses is now telling them, though, that on the Sabbath, they're allowed to grab two days worth of manna. Verse 25, Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. Verse 30, so the people rested on the seventh day. This is the first time in scripture where the people of God observed the Sabbath. Verse 31, now the house of God or house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they might see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came right to the border of the land of Canaan. The word of the Lord. So right off the bat, it's really important for us to see that as we study the wilderness wanderings of Israel over the next few weeks, that God is shaping his chosen covenant people. It's easy for us in America right now to read these chapters in Exodus and think this happened really far away in a really long time ago. What does this have to do with me? But remember, church, we too are God's people. Romans tells us that we have been grafted into that vine. Galatians says that we are the Israel of God and that all the promises made to Abraham and made to Abraham's descendants are ours because of our spiritual connection to Abraham by faith. Galatians 3, 7, those that have faith are children of Abraham. So we have much to learn and much to apply to our own lives. Let's break down what's going on in this passage. We saw last week God's providing manna by raining it down from heaven. And as it's happening, God is both testing and shaping his people. First, the people want to collect more than a day's supply of manna. And then in our passage today, despite the word of the Lord in verse 29, to rest on the Sabbath, there are people that go out anyway to look for more manna. What's happening is that God is testing his people. Talked about this last week too, to see if they'll take him at his word. All throughout this journey, throughout our time in Exodus, we'll see that God is teaching Israel the message of dependence and trust. He's teaching them the message that Amy and I right now are working on with our four-year-old. Obedience brings blessings. Disobedience brings consequences. So here's our point this morning. There is blessing, real, genuine blessing to be found when God's people observe the Sabbath and they miss out on something when they don't. And so let's dive in. Three things that are true about the Sabbath. 
three things that are true about the Sabbath for the Christian in the room today. Number one, the Sabbath is a gift. Sabbath is a gift. It's the first thing that's true about the Sabbath. We see this in verse 29. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. So right off the bat, this sets our perspective about the Sabbath. God has given it to us, given it to the Israelites, given it to us as his people as a gift to be enjoyed. Have to remember what Jesus said about the Sabbath. Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God didn't set aside one day in seven to say, here's a day that's going to be really hard with lots of rules. Let's see if you can nail it. No, God set aside one day in seven to say, here is my gift for you. Do you trust me enough to rest? Ultimately, that's what Sabbath is. It's a gift of rest. The word Sabbath in Hebrew literally means to rest. The problem, though, is that in the 1,200 or so years between the Exodus and the earthly ministry of Jesus, God's purpose, his design for the Sabbath to be a gift of rest, was distorted by the acts and the additions of man, a day set apart for rest and holiness and and spiritual rejuvenation and worship became a day so distorted, so restricted by the rules and regulations of the Pharisees, the religious rulers at the time of Christ, Pharisees came up with 39 different categories of things that you weren't supposed to do on the Sabbath. It became all about these rules. 39 categories. I want to share a couple. For example, in the time of Christ, on the Sabbath, you could spit on a rock, something we all do every day normally. But you couldn't spit on the ground because if you spat on the ground, it would make mud. And mud was used to be mortar and mortar was work. See the point? Makes sense. You couldn't swat a fly on the Sabbath. I'll tell you why. Because it would be considered hunting. Be the extent of the hunting that I've ever done. Couldn't do it on the Sabbath. There are loopholes here too, though. If your house was burning down on the Sabbath, like a blaze with fire. You couldn't carry any clothes out because if you carried something in your arms, it would be considered work. There's a loophole though. You could put on extra layers of clothes and then walk, not run, walk out of your burning house because then you wouldn't be carrying anything and it wouldn't be work. You see the problem here? The focus is taken off of God, off of the gift of rest, off of worship, and on to all the things that you can or can't do. And this gets the Sabbath totally backwards. It isn't meant to be limiting, but liberating. God commanding his people to rest for one day out of seven is not a burden, but a blessing. Even on a practical level, it shows that God cares not just about the the spiritual well-being of his people, but that he cares about the physical well-being. He's literally telling them to take a day off. Remember the context here. Where did Israel just come from? came from slavery in Egypt, where for 400 years, they grinded to the bone. There were no days off in Egypt. They worked themselves almost to death, building bricks made out of mortar. Maybe that's where that rule came from. And here God is saying, I've rescued you. I have delivered you out of slavery in Egypt. And now God is instructing his people to build a weekly rhythm of rest, which ultimately is a gift. Rest is a gift. Not only that, but rest is how we grow. Over the last couple of years, I've gotten moderately into exercise, uh, nothing crazy, but maybe going to the gym every, you know, two or three times a week, curling my pink covered 12.5s, um, nothing crazy, but I'm a reader. 
And so what I like to do is I read a lot about anything I'm into. And so I started to read about exercise science and I'm also a pastor. So I'm going to speak into something that I'm totally not qualified to speak into. If you're a personal trainer, you can come up, correct me, yell at me to do push-ups, all that kind of stuff. I'll do them. Here's what I learned about muscle building and exercise science. Muscle isn't built in the gym. It's built when you're away from the gym. And everyone's like, well, why don't I have more muscle if it's built away from the gym? Because when you're at the gym, what you're doing is you're creating little micro tears in the fibers of your muscles. That's what you're doing when you're at the gym for an hour or so. When you leave the gym and you go home and you eat or you rest and you sleep, what happens is that those little micro tears in your muscles are rebuilt stronger. So the rest actually is how you grow, not in the working. Guess who designed that process? God. How incredible is that? Like God is giving us a model in exercise of how we are best made to function as human beings. God made it this way. And the Sabbath exists for us in much of the same reason. Having a day, a weekly reset, a day set aside for growth, far from limiting God honoring and kingdom advancing productivity actually increases it. God uses that time of rest to nurture and strengthen our souls. It's one day a week where we stop reminding our busy and distracted hearts that we are not in control of our lives, but God is. That the world won't stop turning if we take a day off because ultimately we're not the ones who keep the world turning. God is. And he is a good and gracious, a holy and giving God. He has given us the Sabbath as a gift. Number two. The Sabbath is a discipline. Sabbath is a gift. It's also a discipline. Here's where I want to take a moment to address the question that might be popping up in some of your minds. Okay, the Sabbath is a gift. The Israelites observed it here in Exodus 16. But do we as New Testament Christians have to keep the Sabbath? Is it binding for us as believers? We're going to get a little theological here for a second. So hang with me. We'll get practical in a minute too. There are some Christians who argue that Sunday under the new covenant is the replacement of the old covenant Sabbath of Saturday. However, I don't think we see enough evidence in the New Testament to support that view. Rather, we see plenty of evidence in the New Testament about the Sabbath ultimately finding its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is talking about how God has made us alive in Christ canceling the record of our indebtedness of our sin. It's this beautiful gospel passage talking about what God has done to our sin, nailing it to the cross. We are free in Christ. And then as the backdrop for that statement, he then says this in verses 16 and 17 of Colossians 2. Therefore, again, the therefore is who you are in Christ now. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul's arguing that the substance of the Sabbath belongs to Christ. Several times in the Gospels, Jesus declares himself as Lord of the Sabbath or Lord of over the Sabbath, meaning that he alone gets to dictate how it's not or how it is or how it's not observed. So where does that leave us? I would argue that the Sabbath command, as expressed in the fourth commandment, we'll get to the Ten Commandments in Exodus in a couple weeks, the Sabbath command, as expressed in the fourth commandment, is fulfilled in Christ and no longer binding, no longer required for Christians under the new covenant. But track with me here. The principle 
of pausing one day out of seven to rest into worship is not grounded in the Mosaic law, which is given in Exodus 20. We'll see this again in the Ten Commandments. It's not grounded in the Mosaic law. The principle of taking one day out of seven to rest is grounded in creation. We see this in Genesis chapter one, God resting on the seventh day. And this example that God sets for his people transcends covenants. It goes way above the old covenant and the new covenant, which means that principle applies for us. It applies to us. So where does that leave us? It means that if the principle of the Sabbath applies to the Christian, then our lives should have some evidence that we are observing it. That the Sabbath should be a practice, a discipline, a gift in our lives. So here's where I want to get practical. Kevin Young, a pastor in North Carolina, asked three questions that I found really, really helpful in my own life in cultivating the discipline of the Sabbath. I wanted to share them with us. I think it might be helpful. Number one, this is what Young asked. Are we using Saturday to prepare for Sunday? We're using Saturday to prepare for Sunday. Now, again, there certainly is a continuity, discontinuity piece here, but for the purposes of our time today, I'm going to assume that for most of us, our Sabbath day of rest is happening on Sunday. And we'll see from the word that there is some preparation required if we want to do that day of rest well. Look at Exodus 16, verse 22. God gave the Israelites two omers of manna on day six so that they would be ready to rest on day seven. They had to go out and collect an extra portion of manna. They prepared. This will never be a day of rest for us if we don't think about it on the day before requires preparation. Second question, am I using the Sabbath to get ahead or am I using the Sabbath to get a break? Is today, put it this way, is Sabbath day for us or Sunday, is it a day about have tos, stuff I have to do or stuff I get to do? A day to catch up or a day to breathe? Is there anything on Monday that feels like I actually rested on Sunday? Now, I know that there are some things we can't avoid, We've got to get the kids ready. We have to get them dressed. We have to get to church. I know that that takes work. I understand that our Sabbath day is not a vacation, but there are things on Sundays that we can avoid. We can avoid work emails and social media if we want to avoid that. We can do it. We'd be more present with our families if we want to do that. We can prioritize corporate worship if we want to do that. We can take one day to rest and to worship and to be present with our families. Third question to Young asks, Can others see that the Sabbath day is a day with unique priorities for you and your family? Listen, the Sabbath, our Sunday, is an opportunity for us as Christians to demonstrate to the world what really matters on our schedules. Here's where I'm going to go from preaching to meddling, just for a moment. Parents, If you set an example right now for your kids that corporate worship is optional, then your kids will grow up and view it as optional. They see what you do and what you prioritize. To my single brothers and sisters in the room, if there's a boy or a girl who is super cute and really into you and says all the right things and they're really, really good with your mom and they claim that they love Jesus, but they don't prioritize corporate worship now, then they won't in your future marriage. To my more seasoned saints in the room, 
every pastor has done funerals of people that have died. And those people that have died didn't prioritize corporate worship. And what that does is it leaves their families hoping that they had a real and genuine relationship with Christ. And on the other hand, every pastor has done funerals of saints who made being in corporate worship the bedrock and the anchor of their lives. What that does is it leaves their families knowing that they had a relationship with Christ. And so hear me, church, this day, this Sabbath day of rest is a chance for us as God's people to show the watching world that there is nothing more important for us, that this is our priority because God has told us to come together and to rest and to worship. It's one of the most important things that we do. And this might mean saying no to things that the world says yes to. Like it might mean saying no to that extra shift if it requires you to work on Sundays. It might mean turning down the promotion or the new job if that job has you work on Sundays because you know that while missing one Sunday is not the end-all be-all, if you are totally detached from your local body of believers, you as a Christian will wither. We know that. Man, it might mean that you sign your kid up for a house league sports league and not a travel team because you want to show your family that Sunday morning worship takes priority. Listen, this is not a legalistic thing. I even hesitate as I share some of this. Sabbath is a gift, but it's also a discipline. Number three, and Sabbath is a reminder. It's a reminder. Look back with me at Exodus 16, verses 32 through 34. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it, the manna, be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Here's what's happening. As a reminder, a tangible, physical reminder of the provision of God, the Israelites were told to save an omer of manna, placing it before the Lord. And at this point in the history of Israel, the tabernacle hadn't been constructed, but the point stands, God wanted his people to remember. God wanted his people to remember his faithfulness to them. He wanted his people to remember his provision for them. When the Ark of the Covenant would be built later on, the manna would be placed in it. One of only three things to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant, serving as a physical, weekly, in-your-face reminder of how God has provided. The Sabbath for us as Christians works much in the same way. By God commanding or giving his people a day of rest, a weekly day of rest, God is giving them and us an in-your-face reminder of how God has been faithful and how he has provided for us. We'll see this in two ways. First letter A, immediate provision. The Sabbath is a reminder of the immediate provision of God, a weekly chance to reflect on how God has met our needs for the past week and a chance for God to rejuvenate and encourage our souls as we worship together as we meet together for corporate worship. Listen, we have all, we've all been there. We've had those weeks or maybe it was just an exhausting week, a really hard week. Maybe you went through real suffering that week where life is more difficult than joyful, more hard than easy. I'm trusting in a gathering this size. Many of us are right there this morning. And it's those Sundays where you wake up and it takes everything in you to get out of bed and put on clothes and come together for corporate worship. It takes everything in you. You don't feel joyful. You don't want to come. You don't want to smile and shake hands. 
You don't want to do any of that, but you know that it's good for your soul and you've committed to it. So you put on clothes and you get out of bed and you come. And then here's what happens. You walk into this room, even if you're still not feeling good, and your tank is empty. Tank's empty, needing to be filled. And you walk in this room and the band comes out and we start to sing. And we start to sing these incredible, gospel-filled, scripture-saturated songs. We remind each other through the sound of our voices of how good God is and what God has done for us through the person and work of Jesus. And then little by little, here's what happens to that broken heart, that empty tank. It starts to fill. You see hands raised around you in worship. And there's something, there's something supernatural that's happening in a corporate worship gathering. It's not man-made. God, by his grace and his mercy, is rejuvenating your heart through simply the discipline of being here. We sing and we raise our hands and we praise God for who he is. He's the great I am, the one who has saved us from our sins. And then we pray together. We sit under the preaching of the word. Again, preaching from this book, this book. And God in his mercy through this book starts to revitalize and refresh our souls, church. He does it because he's so good. It's a miracle. He does it because he's so good and he's so kind for us. And then what happens is we come in with an empty tank and we leave rejoicing because how God has immediately provided for us on that Sabbath day of worship. It's incredible. But get this, that Sabbath worship day experience, this gathering is not meant to sustain you for the next two months. It's not, it can't. And so here's what happens. You'll come back and I'll come back right there with you next week needing to be filled again. My wife and I, Amy, I think she's sitting over there. We've been married for almost six years, six years in May. And on our honeymoon, we went to Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. Anyone been to Berkeley Springs? Really, really beautiful, sleepy mountain town. Um, there's an incredible restaurant in Berkeley Springs. And it's the kind of restaurant where we got married when we were really early 20s. The kind of restaurant where you need a really nice gift card to go. We got that nice gift card, made our reservations, went to this restaurant. Incredible three-course meal, like such a fancy restaurant where between the first and second courses, they brought you out a little Italian ice thing. They sit it down on the table and I'm like, what the heck is that? A mousse-bouche is what the heck is that? Uh, I didn't know that, never had it again. It's a palate cleanser, apparently, that they do at nice restaurants. So anyway, we have this meal, steak and salmon and dessert. It's absolutely incredible. So incredible that I'm talking about it now, six years later. Haven't recreated that experience yet. It's as good as it got. It's the best meal I've ever had. I don't remember what I had for lunch three weeks ago on a Tuesday. I don't. But you know what I know about that lunch that I had three weeks ago on a Tuesday? It fed me for that day. Listen, most corporate worship gatherings, most sermons exist to feed you for that day. Even following Christ for a long time, you have those Berkeley Springs sermons. You have those sermons where God saved you and you'll remember that sermon for the rest of your life because God used that sermon to open your eyes to the beauty and glory of the gospel. God saved you through it. Maybe you got that sermon that saved your marriage where God brought reconciliation or God used a sermon or a time in the word to break addiction. We have those landmark moments in the Christian life. But for most of us, the majority of Christian growth happens week in and week out on sermons that just feed us for today. Like, I'm not naive. I know that in three weeks, you're not going to remember my three points about the Sabbath. I probably will remember my three points about the Sabbath. But you know what I know? I know that Lord willing, he's feeding us right now. That he's feeding us for today, church. 
That's why Jesus asks us to pray or leads us to pray. Give us today our daily bread. Not storing up manna for tomorrow. We've seen this all over Exodus 16. We don't store up manna for tomorrow. We store just enough up for today. And so God has, through the Sabbath, immediately provided for us by filling up our tanks, giving us exactly what we need for today. And next Sunday, we're going to need it again. God has provided immediately. The second way God provides, letter B, through the Sabbath, it's a reminder of the eternal provision of God. God is reminding us week in and week out on the Sabbath that he provides immediately. And God reminds us that he has provided eternally. We spent a lot of time this morning unpacking the importance of observing the Sabbath as one of the natural means of grace, something we can do that God blesses, that God offers us to refresh and rest our souls. It's something we can tangibly do to push back against the hustle of our culture is so important. But I want to leave here fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because ultimately, that's where the Sabbath points us to our souls eternally finding rest in the person of Christ. I titled our message this morning, The Beauty of the Sabbath. And here's why. Part of the beauty of the weekly reminder of the Sabbath is that it points us to the reality that God has provided for us through Jesus. And that he did so not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own mercy and compassion towards his people. We saw this last week when Pastor Sean took us to John 6. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the true and better manna, the one who fully satisfies our hunger and who fully quenches our thirst. And not only is Jesus our provision, but he's also our true source of rest, church. In Jesus, we rest from the working and the striving for our salvation, and we rest in the finished work of Christ. In Jesus, we go from trying to white-knuckle, earn our approval from God, to looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus has already earned approval from God. I'm going to take Jesus' righteousness, granted, imputed to us by faith. Paul puts it this way in his letter to Titus, but When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, yet not because of our works, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God has saved us. God has saved us, not because of our work, but because of his mercy poured out from Calvary so that we can rest once and for all in the person of Jesus. And and hear me, this rest doesn't lead to laziness. This rest leads to a changed life. We'll get there in a couple weeks when we unpack the Ten Commandments. It should change us. But that work is transformed because we work not for the approval of God, but from his approval because it's been granted to us through Jesus. And so here's my bottom line this morning about the Sabbath. At the heart of the Sabbath, we rest from our works and we rest in Christ apart from our works. God is reminding us of his eternal provision through Christ. I want to invite the band back up. We'll close with this. I think sometimes we hear what I just said and it can be cliche. It can sound cliche. Okay, I know that I'm supposed to rest in Christ. I know that my salvation is not something I earned. We've been sitting in church for long enough to where I think that most of us know that. We should say it every week. We rehearse it every week because we want that truth to to really sit in our souls, to change us. But sometimes we lose how incredible and unique a miracle that is in the Christian life. I heard a story recently of a conversation between a rabbi and iman and a pastor, which sounds like the beginning of a really bad joke. 
Um, true story. Having a conversation, a rabbi and Iman and a pastor, and they were talking about the similarities and differences between their world religions. And Iman is a, a priest of the Muslim faith, rabbi, Judaism, pastor of Christianity. And they were talking about how God is the same, but different. What are the similarities? What are the differences? And they used the illustration of a mountain. And they said, okay, let's pretend that God is at the top of a mountain. And let's pretend that man is at the bottom of the mountain. And so the goal of life of all religions is to find a way for man to work his way up the mountain and get to God. Man has to be with God to reach heaven or paradise or whatever you want to call it. And the rabbi in the Iman found a lot of common ground. They said, okay, well, here's what's going on in our different religions. In Islam and Judaism, all we're doing is we're taking different routes up the mountain, but we're getting to the same place. Like a Muslim might take one route up the mountain, working in this way to get to God. And a Jew, an Israelite, might take this way up the mountain to get to God. But ultimately, it's the same God. We're just taking different ways to get there. And these guys were really excited about that, that common ground they had. I mean, they thought in this moment, you're, you're solving world peace. Like, if we can get everyone to agree that it's the same God, multiple different ways to get to God, then we're fine. They looked at the pastor waiting for him to agree, waiting for this breakthrough that all religions are the same, that all religions are just different ways to get to God, different ways to get up the mountain. They said, Pastor, what do you think? He said, Actually, I disagree. Christianity is different. Christianity is not man working his way up the mountain to get to God. Christianity teaches that God, in his grace, came down the mountain and took us, and held us, and cherished us, and then brought us up the mountain to himself. That's what Christianity teaches. And that's a whole lot different than working to earn your salvation, working to earn the approval of God, working to conjure up your own man-made kind of righteousness. And so here at a church, especially if you're not yet a Christian and you have this mindset, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to work really hard and hope to get to heaven one day. Listen, Christ has done the work for you. He's done the work for you through his perfect life, his death on the cross and through his resurrection. He's done it for you. So in the Sabbath, we rest. We rest weekly to refresh our souls and we rest eternally in the person and work of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this time this morning. I pray for myself. I pray for our church family, God, that we would rest on a weekly basis, that we would implement this discipline of the Sabbath in our lives, and that we would rest eternally through the person and work of Jesus. Reminded, God, of the last words of the Buddha were strive without ceasing. The last words of Christ were it is finished. And so, God, we thank you that it's finished, that our standing before you is finished, that the work is finished, that it happened at Calvary. And the empty tomb is evidence that it is finished. And so I pray for the weary soul this morning that you would fill up that tank, that you would revitalize them and that you would give them rest in Jesus, that they would do Matthew 11, that they would come to Jesus that he would give them rest. I thank you for this time in the word this morning. Thank you for this sweet church family, God. I pray that you would bless this church family. Give them rest. Give me rest. Give us rest as we rest in the personal work of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name we pray.